welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. It has been an unusually long time since we've all joined you because of the canceled games and the rescheduled games uh, taking up off days. But uh, Ben and I are uh, very strict in following our uh, guidelines of being an off day podcast. And we finally have one. So we're back. Uh, Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well, uh, except Mike Matheny and the Royals swallowed up one of our off days uh, earlier this week. Right. Uh, actually, it was Mother Nature. I just like to blame Matheny for things because he's just an idiot. thought he couldn't hurt us again. He he found another way. Yes, uh, it's it's uncanny his ability to inflict pain on baseball fans <laughs> and St. Louis Cardinals baseball fans in particular. But uh, uh, yeah, so we're we're very excited to be back uh, with everybody. Um, I think we've uh, on the plus side since it's been a while since we recorded. I think we've got a lot of interesting things. Um, to talk about today. We got a ton of questions from uh, listeners on Twitter, so we're really excited to get to those a little bit later. But Ben, to kick things off, uh, what have we learned? Uh, I have learned that uh, Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball are intent on uh, severely damaging offense in the game uh, as it is played today. Uh, and, And to illustrate, Ben, what is your impression of the Cardinals offense so far this year? Um, you know, uh, not not very good, but I do know that the the league overall has not been very good. So I think relative to the rest of the league, I, I would guess that the Cardinals are somewhere like maybe 20th out of 30 teams in offense would be my guess, kind of depending on what metric you're looking at. Yeah, and and that's that's right when you're talking about the metrics. So when you, when you combine Manfred and Bill DeWitt Jr. and his uh, inclination to keep the walls where they are at Bush Stadium because it means that he does not have to pay as much for pitching, um, the Cardinals are about league average. Right. The Cardinals' offense is about league average. And, and we're recording this uh, in advance uh, of the off day uh, just because uh, we have uh, some real life things coming up this weekend that'll make recording difficult. Um, but here's, here's where the Cardinals are. They're above average uh, as we record today in batting average. They're above the major league overall rate and on base percentage. They're below the major league rate in slugging uh, a little bit, and they are two points below the major league rate as a team in weighted on base average. Because they play their home games in uh, Bush Stadium, they're actually one point above league average in weighted runs created plus, which uh, gives a run value to every offensive event and then provides a park adjustment. So we all like to complain and we all watch the Cardinals, and and we're all on Twitter, right? And so liking to complain in Twitter means that we complain. Um, but I think sometimes we lose track of the backdrop of the greater uh, Major League Baseball goings-on. And in this instance, uh, those goings-on are uh, look quite a bit like the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals are very representative of Major League Baseball's hitting so far this young season. Uh, 
And so uh, that is what I have learned is as frustrating as the Cardinals are to watch, they are essentially representative of the major league average so far this year when it comes to hitting. And they also, uh, I was was just going to say, and also when you factor in uh, their ability to prevent runs, that makes them a pretty good team. Yeah. I No, I was just going to uh, jump in and say I thought there was a tweet today, and I, I don't remember who wrote it, uh, that pointed out the uh, league-wide, the major league-wide uh, offensive numbers for this year are very close to Miguel Cairo's career batting line. So I thought that was a really uh, useful visual for us all to keep in mind of what major league average looks like now. And, and you know, some of us are old enough to remember the Miguel Cairo era in St. Louis. And for those who aren't, I'll just tell you that I never once, uh, you know, hollered, honey, come into the room. Miguel Cairo is up. So, um, but yeah, that's where and, we're at. And, and John Mosellock's whole career has been geared towards never paying a free agent for Miguel Cairo production. That's true. That's true. The Miguel Cairo principle. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Ben, uh, you learned something about the Cardinals offense. I also learned something specifically about Dylan Carlson's offense. And I wanted to bring this up because I, I think last season on the pod, and I, but I've mentioned it, we've talked about it since then, but we talked about the idea that Tommy Edmond is kind of a, a fake switch hitter. You know, Tommy Edmond is a switch hitter, but his career uh, way to runs created or OPS plus uh, from the right side, 131, very good. From the left side, 96. Uh, not very good. Um, uh, and and a, a pretty huge gulf there. And a big enough gulf that, you know, it makes me say, you know, should this player be a platoon player? And, and honestly, when I see that kind of gulf, it also makes me just wonder, like, maybe just don't switch hit anymore. You know, like, are you really that bad, uh, you know, if you hit right-handed pitching, right-handed? Uh, wonder about trying that out. I bring this up because you know who's been even worse uh, is Dylan Carlson. And I think we all know that Dylan Carlson is just not having a very good offensive season so far. Um, it's early. I'm not, I, I, I don't have, I, I mean, I'm a little concerned about Dylan Carlson, but I'm not pressing the panic button on Dylan Carlson, except that when it comes to his platoon splits, uh, I am maybe maybe about ready to push the the uh push the panic button so dylan carlson um batting right-handed in 2022 has a 66 wrc plus uh ben do you know what he has from the left side of the plate where he takes most of his at bats i do not uh 14 okay so that's uh, a difference of 50 points right there which is enormous now it would be easy to say it's early in 2022 we all know he's off to a bad start that probably doesn't mean anything well let's turn back the clock to his 2021 2021 as a right-handed hitter he had a 150 wrc plus which is you know like goldschmidt level uh production left-handed he was at 103 okay so you know 103 you're still a a, a tick above league average there but again we're talking about a 50 point difference from those two sides of the plate so ben i'm what i'm learning is i don't know if i believe in dylan carlson batting from the left-hand side of the plate against right-handed pitching i i can understand that i his numbers are so terrible uh, across the board this young season. I, I, it's tough for me uh, 
to really sink my teeth into them. Yeah. Uh, although I'm going yeah. to try to later on in this uh, podcast episode. Um, but last year he, you know, as you say, he, he did a little bit uh, better and, you know, he was able to do it in the minors. And then there's the sentimental uh, mindset that I have. I really like watching switch hitters. Uh, I really like Lance Berkman and Carlos Beltran. I was thrilled they joined the Cardinals late in their career. Um, and so I really, and something that I have kind of wondered is maybe switch head, hitting might be close to becoming extinct just with the way the game is trending because it's hard enough to get your mechanics right and scout, you know, from one side of the plate. Uh, yeah. But then also the breaking stuff has become so nasty. I thought maybe that might help offset uh the the threat there so yeah um, you know what i'm i wonder i haven't seen but i because I, I have the same sense i feel like it's kind of going away for all the reasons that you said and i i wonder and i haven't seen if uh anyone doing kind of a like a large scale look at, at how that's maybe changing but you know i mean the the basic premise behind switch hitting is is that it's going to help you avoid the big platoon splits um you know and and uh, depending on the pitcher you're facing. But, uh, you know, these two guys in particular, you know, those are massive platoon splits. Those would be a problem for someone who was not switch hitting. Um, So, uh, you know, anyway, it'll be interesting to see as we move forward. Um, So, Ben, before we get into our first topic, uh, we do have an advertiser this week. So... um, let me fire this up here. And they did, they did, they asked me to play some melancholy piano music as I read this. So I'm just going to get that fired up here. So let me see if I can get that going. All right. A caring man took a walk through Ballpark Village. He saw fans suffering. Anxiety ran high. Hatred rose. I'll prepare a team that maximizes efficiency and profit, he thought. But some refused to join him. He was heartbroken because he wanted everyone to watch the game, or at least enough to meet financial projections when combined with TV deals, merchandising, and all other ancillary revenue sources. Bill DeWitt Jr., he gets us, many of us. And uh, once again, thank you to all of our advertisers. Uh, You can always hit us up on Twitter if you would like to uh, sponsor the podcast. Ben, uh, shall we dive into our first topic? Yes. So uh, I believe our first topic today is gore mania, <laughs> which you and I have have both seen the doctor and we have been uh, diagnosed with gore mania. Yes. Because uh, what you're going to do, brother, when gore mania runs wild on you? Uh, and if you're John Mosellock, you're going to keep gore mania down in AAA. Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is uh, something that everybody's looking at um, as, as we record this. And again, Ben and I are recording it a few days early, but uh, Nolan Gorman has 11 home runs in AAA. I believe he's third in all of the minor leagues. Although, of course, number one is Moises Gomez, a, another Cardinal prospect whose name we all learned, uh, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, but uh, so there's a lot of clamoring to bring Nolan up. Um so we, I think we just kind of want to touch on that. So Ben, where do you, where do you want to start with, with Nolan Gorman? Um, you know, I, I, I want to say that 
uh, I am probably in the minority here. Um, and I find myself uh, in a strange position. Uh, you know, we've often talked about we live in a minor league town. We've grown up seeing uh, players come through. Uh, we always pull for them and root for them. Uh, you know, I, I believe Joe Strauss uh, referred uh, to me as, as well as other writers at Viva Albertos and future Redbirds as hyperventilating prospect geeks uh, back in the day. Uh, I think Bernie Miklas, when he wrote for stltoday.com, used to mock us for how much we revered the quote-unquote Fabergé eggs. Um, and I would also like to point out that history has proven us right and Bernie Miklas and Joe Strauss wrong. Uh, the DeWallet ball model is to develop Fabergé eggs uh, and to bring them into the majors and have them uh, contribute to the major league team and the Cardinals have had success doing that. And so I typically pull for these kids. Uh, I want them to do well. I want them to make it to the majors. I, I want them to help the Cardinals win. Um, and so with respect to Nolan Gorman, uh, I think it's a little bit weird that I am not amongst the people who are like, we need to bring up Nolan Gorman right now. Uh, and, and the reason being, I, I think he still needs to work on some stuff down in the minors because I, I look at his line and I'm not sure how it plays in the majors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Ben, I'll be honest, I agree with you on that. Um, now, I, I think he's definitely knocking at the door and I think we're going to see him soon. And I'm excited to see him soon because you can't watch the 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 gifts, uh, you know, that, that Kyle does such an amazing job of posting of all of those home runs and not just salivate at the idea of those, especially when you're watching the major league offense uh, night after night. But, you know, um, as you said, and I, I see people on Twitter who kind of say, well, there's no reason to keep him down or et cetera. And I think, well, there's some pretty significant reasons to bring him down, to keep him down. And it, it, there's two, there's two factors to me that, that, you know, play into it. And number one is the, you know, his strikeouts, uh, his, he, he's currently striking out at a 36% rate. And, you know, one thing we know is when players move from triple a to the majors, their strikeout rate increases. Um, 36% is just about the top of what you can possibly get away with in the major leagues. And if you're striking out 40% of the time, you're pretty much unplayable. That is what Tyler O'Neill, that was about his strikeout rate, you know, his first kind of call up to the majors, um, you know, and so we, we, we've seen this. So I think that's real. Um, I know, uh, I know Kyle has, has kind of pointed out on, on, on Twitter that, you know, he maybe was striking out a lot earlier in the year, it kind of improved. Uh, in the first three games this May, though, he has one hit, one walk, and seven strikeouts. Again, that's three games. Like I don't want to overreact, but I think the the strikeout rate is not really settled there. And interestingly enough, last year he, he had a 19% strikeout rate in AAA, and I think he had like a good 300 plate appearances there. So, you know, the approach he used last year and the approach he used this year are different. Um, you know, what's the correct approach for him? I don't know, but he's still a player who's kind of figuring that out a little bit. And so a player who's figuring that out, a player who's striking out at that rate, I think that's legitimate to say we want to see this evolve a little bit more before we before we bring him up. 
Yes, I I agree. Um, I would also point to his walk rate, which is okay, but not uh, not what you would expect to see from a batter who is hitting with the power that he is hitting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've we've brought up the Ichiro Suzuki advice that first you rake and then you walk. And so, you know, I, I think he's still, he has a, a wonderful swing that produces a lot of natural power. And I think he's still trying to figure out how to harness that. Clearly, he's able to unleash it and hit for a lot of power. Um, but I think trying to harness that uh, and and work the count and those types of things. But in addition to that, you know, I think Nolan Gorman is the the fairly near medium and and term solution at second base for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I think that's the way that the front office sees him. And you've had STL today and the St. Louis media establishment hyping Tommy Edmond because he hit a few home runs in the first handful of games. Uh, but since then, you know, Edmond's numbers have begun to just go down, 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 which is where you would expect him to be given his peripherals and overall skill level. And so, uh, you know, Nolan Gorman is going to be the everyday second baseman when he comes to St. Louis. And the St. Louis Cardinals are not going to promote him to St. Louis until they feel confident that he's ready to be the St. Louis second baseman every day. Yeah. And I. And, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, you know, and nor should they. And I know that there's people who point to the fact that. Um, you know, the, the Cardinals are not getting much production out of the designated hitter position. And in particular, Corey Dickerson, who was supposed to be the uh, left-handed platoon side of the designated hitter uh, spot is, is really not doing anything. So I, I've heard a lot of people say, well, why don't they just bring Gorman in and put him in there? And I think they're, they're not going to do that, nor should they. Uh, because as you said, Nolan Gorman is a player who they see being a very long-term part of this team. And uh, you mentioned Fabergé eggs earlier. And I, I, I think I've said before, I think the Cardinals, they have two kinds of prospects. They have Fabergé eggs and they have non-Fabergé eggs. <laughs> and um, you can see that, you know, Brendan Donovan and even Juan Yepes are kind of in the not Fabergé eggs category because they're willing to bring those guys up for a part-time, uh, you know, in a part-time role. Uh, and, and they'll probably go up and down a bit. Um, you know, that's how they've treated Lars Newtbar as well. They have, they have players like that. And, and those guys have a shot, you know, in that kind of part-time role, if they really show something, they can catch on. I mean, frankly, uh, Tommy Edmond and Paul DeYoung were non-Fabergé guys who found their way in. Uh, on the other hand, a guy like Dylan Carlson was very much a Fabergé egg and, you know, is not going to be brought up until he has that everyday role. That's the same thing with Gorman. The reason it, you don't do that as a designated hitter is twofold. Number one, this is a player who you have just asked to make this very difficult transition from third base to second base. And by all accounts, he's improved by leaps and bounds, maybe still has a ways to go defensively, depending on who you talk to, but you know it's going well. Why would you stunt that? Why would you bring him up and ask him to play 
the majority of a season where he's either a designated hitter or on the bench. That's completely counterproductive. Now, the counter to that could be, well, then he can just stay a designated hitter. But as you and I have talked about, that's just not what teams do anymore. Teams don't have an everyday designated hitter. And you certainly don't take a player in their early 20s who could be a you know, kind of cornerstone of your team and relegate them at that point to having no defensive position at all. That just saps so much value for them. So th- those are a couple of the reasons that I just think that's that's not going to happen. And and I agree wholeheartedly. He needs more time playing second base every day in the field before he comes to the majors. And if they promote him now because Corey Dickerson is not hitting, they are going to sap his development. Uh, at second base as a fielder. They're also going to hurt his development as a hitter because they're going to be platooning him with Albert Pujols. And I know that they positioned like, well, we'll see, you know, how Nolan Gorman performs in spring training. But with the abbreviated spring training, Nolan Gorman was was never going to make the St. Louis Cardinals out of spring training. And if anyone tells you that was the case and that he had a chance to be a platoon at DH, I just think that they have grossly uh, missed the boat in their assessment of where this team was. And there's no stronger indication of that than how quickly they signed Corey Dickerson and then Mosaloc saying our priority coming out of the lockout was signing a veteran (laughs) left-hander to be a DH. Like before the lockout happened, they were not planning on Nolan Gorman being on the opening day roster. Yeah. Then DeWitt and all his owner pals forced the lockout on everyone. And that really killed any chance that Gorman might be able to be in touch with the team, you know, working out with a Kendo showing them, Hey, I'm ready to go. Instead, they had to cut off all contact, show up at spring training, see where everyone was. Once that became the case, they were going in another direction. And they chose to go with Corey Dickerson, which was an understandable signing at the time, uh, I think. Uh, And we'll talk about that more later. But uh, he needs more time in the minors. The Cardinals recognize that. The Cardinals believe he is their next everyday second baseman. And he brings power that can play in Bush Stadium in a way that many players can't bring. And so you want to be careful with that. You want to make sure you've given him every opportunity uh, to have a strong foundation so that when he comes to the majors, he is ready to be in the majors, play every day, and stay in the majors, playing every day for as long as Bill DeWitt is willing to pay him. Yeah. You know, and the thing that the other thing about this that's really interesting to me, and this goes beyond just Nolan Gorman, but. Uh, and we talk a lot about what has become the the Cardinals' philosophy, which is elite defense, you know, to allow them to have fairly pedestrian, if not poor, pitching, and and still have very good um, uh, run prevention. And I think that has really raised a lot of questions about the status of some of the guys in their minor league system, because that's a fairly recent thing that I think the the big league club has steered so hard into that philosophy. Would you, would you agree with that, Ben? Don't you feel like that's just maybe within the last two years that they've wholeheartedly embraced that? 
Yeah, I think so. I, you know, you don't trade for Marcelo Zuna. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's a, no, that's yeah, a great, it, that's a great recent example. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and then and then you look at the the acquisitions uh, and the way, it, and not even just the acquisitions, the the moves that they have made to trade players away. They got rid of Tommy Pham to clear the deck for a Harrison Bader, an elite center fielder. Mm-hmm. Um, they have cleared the deck for Tyler O'Neill, yeah, who has power but is also an elite defender. Um, well, that's, they, and that's a great question because if, if we, if, and I'm sorry to kind of jump on you here, Ben, but you know, if we think back to even just about two to three years ago when there was still some uncertainty, right, as to who's going to be, you know, emerging as a corner outfielder, Tyler O'Neill was definitely a name, but you still had Randy Rosarina around. You still had Jose Adolis Garcia around. You still, slightly before that, you had Tommy Famer. I mean, all those guys were kind of in there. And, you know, uh, as looking back now, I think a big reason that O'Neill emerged is O'Neill is by far the best defender of that group. And I mean, obviously he's a very good hitter as well, but the rest of those guys can hit too. But I think what really separates O'Neill is O'Neill plays elite defense. Yeah. He also has easy power. I, I oh, think yeah, it's, no, I mean, he's got, yeah, I mean, he's a whole package, but, 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 but it, it's, it illustrates the point that I, that I'm thinking about which is some of these guys in the minors. And I mean, forever, there's just been this idea that, well, a guy who can hit well enough, will find a position for him, right? Um, the Philadelphia Phillies have an entire team of those guys, right? Uh, it, yep. you know, it's just always been a thing. It, it's kind of always been a thing. I don't know that the Cardinals are operating that way anymore. And, and we, we talked, we kind of touched on this specifically when we talked about Juan Yepes with, with Kyle on our, our minor league preview. You know, Yepes is a guy who's absolutely a bat, but... Like, I don't know what position that guy plays. And so I, I'm starting to have a hard time seeing him, you know, fitting into St. Louis long term. If, you know, if he doesn't find a, a defensive home where he can play at, at the at minimum average defense, you know, if not, plus, you know, plus defense. Um, we talk, I mentioned earlier Moises Gomez, you know, this elite power prospect they have. Does a guy like that ultimately have a future in the organization, you know, if they can't, um, you know, provide that defensive value? It's a real question. I think that's one reason that you kind of see Brendan Donovan has really sort of emerged, you know, maybe earlier than some of these other guys who might be there because Brendan Donovan has a lot of defensive value and a lot of defensive versatility. So I think that's just going to, it's going to be really interesting to see position players in their system, you know, um, just because at the major league level, we, we don't see them playing players with that kind of profile. So what are they going to do with these guys they have in the minor leagues who, who profile as those kind of players? Are we going to start to see them traded out of the system? You know, how is that going to shake out? Yeah, it's going to be interesting as the Wainwright and Michaelis contracts and, you know, they will still have mats. Um, but, you know, and then what happens with Flaherty and, and who is the next wave of pitchers? Do they go more strikeout heavy? Because strikeout heavy pitchers allow you to fudge a little bit with the defense, right? Because there are fewer balls in play. And so it's really going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, they went out and signed Dr. Thunder, Stephen Matz, uh, (laughs) to a four-year deal. And that seemed to me to really signal what their philosophy for the next four to five years was going to be. And it's exactly what you're describing. And so if that is the case, what happens to Nolan Gorman? What happens to Juan Yepes? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, it's and, a good and, question. And to your question about pitching, I mean, what I really expect is I think they're going to continue to try to develop strikeout pitchers because they are hugely valuable. So when they can have a Jack Flaherty come up through the system, I think they will they will, you know, value that. I think, you know, a Gordon Graceffo seems like maybe the, uh, you know, a, a pitcher of that ilk who could be a, you know, a, a strikeout, uh, more of that strikeout profile starting pitcher. So I, I, I think we'll still see those guys, but we will only see those guys that they've been able to, you know, draft and develop internally. I just don't see them uh, going out on the open market and signing those very expensive, high strikeout profile starting pitchers. And for that reason, I think, you know, I think they'll hope to have, you know, maybe one or two kind of internal guys who can be in the rotation who have that profile, but they're going to, they're going to fill it out with, uh, you know, your, your Matzes and and your Jay Haps and your John Lester's and, you know, on and on. And that seems to really appeal to the owner uh, oh, based on, on the article on stltoday.com. Uh, DeWitt seems to really, he calls it like a competitive advantage, but that's it, it. The competitive advantage cuts both ways, right? Like you're not getting that benefit on the road. Well, the competitive um, advantage is between him having money and him having less. Money. Yes, exactly. I was just about to say it's more a DeWallet advantage. It's, it's more money in his pocket um, as, as opposed to, you know, a clear advantage for the team. Uh, especially in the postseason, um, yeah. so yeah. where elite pitching has more value. So, again, yeah. another example of Bill DeWitt caring more about making money than the team winning a World Series championship, uh, and and it's created a weird conundrum for John Mozeliak and the rest of the baseball operations folks in the front office. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think I think it's going to be really interesting to watch as the season plays out. I think we're absolutely unless, of course. So something really changed. If, if Nolan Gorman keeps playing, you know, more or less as he's playing and continues to make some incremental improvements in, uh, you know, strikeouts and, and defense, we're going to see Nolan Gorman this year, I think. But it'll just be really interesting to see the, the machinations of that, both for Gorman, but I think also for what it tells us maybe about some of these other prospects down the line as well. So. Um, so, Ben, I think we should move on now to we uh, we have some awards to give out today. Um, we, uh, April is done. And so, uh, we have a few, uh, awards specific to the month of April we wanted to give out. Uh, would you, uh, would you like to hand out our, our first award? Uh, we have categories and I think we're each giving an award in each category. Yes. And, uh, th- these are the, uh, annual, uh, Cardinals off day, April awards. And there's an asterisk because April is meaningless. So, uh, our, our first award is, uh, going to the, uh, player who is the biggest, or excuse me, uh, yeah, the biggest surprise. Biggest surprise, yeah. And, uh, we are going to give that award to Tommy Edmond, um, because as you know, uh, Tommy Edmonds' true talent level, which he has established in the major leagues this year, is that he's a utility player uh, who should start against left-handed pitching. Uh, and early this season, uh, Tommy Edmond hit three home runs and a double in the first five games of the year. And the Cardin- the St. Louis media establishment uh, decided 
because they love Tommy Edmond, that this made him the leadoff hitter again, and uh, maybe even the MVP of the whole league. Uh, But I am here to tell you why it is so surprising that Tommy Edmond is having a good early season and why it will not be surprising uh, when Tommy Edmonds' offensive production looks like Tommy Edmonds' offensive production when June rolls around or July. We'll, we'll see how long. Right now, his numbers are, are sinking like a stone in a lake, and I don't anticipate that changing. Uh, so, uh, Ben, you'll recall, uh, we have long said uh, Tommy Edmonds' best when he puts the ball in the air, right? Absolutely. And uh, for those of you listening at home, you know, if if you grew up in the Dave Duncan era or not, you know, Dave Duncan believed in ground balls. And one of the ways he would convince pitchers to throw ground balls uh, is he would keep a tally of extra base hits they gave up on ground balls. Uh, and, And that was a way to help convert them to his way of thinking. And all the pitchers were like, hey, I don't give up extra base hits on ground balls. Uh, so one of the weird things about Tommy Edmonds' uh, early season this year is that he's, you know, he's he's had a very good offensive start to the year, right? He's uh, he's well, his slugging actually has dropped below uh, 500 already, um, but his ISO is still 167, which actually isn't all that great. Uh, as I said, his numbers are sinking like a stone, but nonetheless, it is impressive because his ground ball percentage is basically what hitters do against Dakota Hudson. It's, it's up uh, around 54% so far this year. And if you read the STL today, uh, you would think, oh, he changed his swing to hit for more power. Well, the change in his swing has had two primary effects on his uh, batted ball profile, Ben, and that is to increase his ground ball percentage by almost 10% over his career average, which means that it's uh, over 11% higher than the major league average. And it has also more than tripled his infield fly ball percentage, uh, which is about uh, two and a half times higher than the major league average and over three times higher than his career average. So those are two reasons not to believe his numbers. Uh, The others are uh, his home run per fly ball percentage. For his career, he's a 9% home run uh, per fly ball guy. And even now, as the number goes down and down and down, uh, because of the three home runs in the first five games, which he hasn't had a home run since the team's fifth game, uh, his home run per fly ball percentage is still uh, almost 16%, which is 7% higher than his career rate. Now, where has Tommy actually had some improvement? It's what he's doing with balls on the, the edge of the zone. And Ali Marmal gave a quote to the STL today uh, about this, saying that he's done a good job on the edge of the plate. And it's true. Uh, last year, uh, his swing take profile according to Baseball Savant and the StatCast uh, data, resulted in minus 23, negative 23 runs of value. And uh, earlier this week, it was neutral. And so even if it's neutral, that's that's a huge swing in their favor, and you're seeing it in his walk rate. But even with his increased walk rate, that's largely driven by 
pitchers throwing him more pitches outside of the zone. He still has, is chasing pitches outside the zone at the same rate. And over the last couple weeks, pitchers have begun throwing him in the zone more. And so it will be interesting to see, since Tommy Edmond isn't really a threat at the plate, if pitchers start nibbling a little bit more at the plate because uh, they know he's not going to be able to do any damage to them. All of this is to say Tommy Edmonds' April is the biggest surprise on the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, his numbers sinking as the month progresses and as the season progresses, however, are not a surprise at all. Tommy Edmond is Tommy Edmond, and he will be supplanted by Nolan Gorman in the not-too-distant future as the everyday second baseman, and he will become the utility player he was destined to be at least for a couple years until the Cardinals think he's too expensive and is therefore expendable. Uh, ben, that, uh, some of those numbers I'm, I've been, I'm aware of a lot of that, but I was really surprised um, to see some of those numbers. Um, I will tell you uh, uh, not a big surprise to me was uh, uh, you deflating the Tommy Edmond bubble. That was uh, relentlessly on brand for you. And I, I, <laughs> I commend you it's- for doing that. It's it it is something where I I understand why people like watching Tommy Edmund play. I like watching Tommy Edmund play too, except when he grounds out all the time, which is right. what he which tends is to when, do, which he does when he's hitting left-handed. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, and this is something I I have a strong reaction to the fawning coverage from the St. Louis media establishment, right? And it makes me go look things up about Tommy Edmund. And I almost always find that like Rick Hummel is just completely unhinged in his pro Edmund coverage. Yeah. And we call, we call that rage fan graphing what you're doing. Right <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I want everyone to know, I don't know Tommy Edmund. He seems like a really nice guy and I want him to succeed. Uh, but very little about his hitting profile leads me to believe that he will have much success uh, when he is batting left-handed. Yeah. Well, it's, it's always tough when there's dissonance between the coverage a player gets and, and who the player is. And, um, you know, on the flip side of that, I feel like I'm always defending Paul DeYoung, who is, is, is not, not great and certainly has some serious problems, but just gets buried to a degree that I don't think he nearly deserves. But I'm not going to talk about Paul DeYoung right now. I may talk about him later because my biggest surprise uh, is Miles Michaelis. And I'm sure everyone uh, has noticed that Miles Michaelis is off to a good start. Uh, he has a 1.52 ERA, uh, a 2.89 FIP, which you know, of course, that's you know, 1.52 is is very low for the ERA, but that's still a, a really phenomenal FIP. And his uh, his ex FIP, which regresses uh, home run rate to the uh, league average, is 3.46, which is still very 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 good. Um, now, uh, unlike Tommy Edmond, uh, I think Miles Michaelis can sustain this. Um, now, his I, I mentioned his home run rate is uh, you know a little lower than it's going to be so far. Um, his his BABIP is is a little low too. That's going to change a little bit. And uh, he currently has a ninety percent left on base rate, Ben. And uh, I would wager against that um, sticking around as well. But even so, his Numbers this year, and especially his underlying numbers, are very comparable to 2018, which I think we all remember when that his first season in St. Louis, he you know he was excellent. Um, in particular, 
so, and actually just his overall line from 2018, he had a 2.83 ERA, 3.28 FIP for the season. So very, you know, those two numbers are very close to what he's doing right now. And I think one of the big reasons for that, he's throwing uh, 46% strikes right now, which is his highest since 2018. Um, so, uh, you know, if you've watched Miles Michaelis pitch, I'll be honest, I like watching Miles Michaelis pitch. He has a profile which I feel like every guy had in the 90s and maybe early 2000s, but just about nobody has now. You know, he throws four pitches. He fills the zone up with strikes. None of those pitches are like plus pitches. You know, he doesn't throw a frisbee slider or changeup. He's not a guy who gets gift by pitching ninja. But he fills the zone up with strikes. Um, he he mixes his pitches and his locations up enough that he's he's able to be effective that way. So, um, so you know, so that I mean, that's what he's doing. Um, I think obviously he had that very strong 2018, um, you know, and then was basically injured after that. And, you know, Miles Michaelis is an older guy. Miles Michaelis is a guy who basically washed out of MLB early in his career, found himself in Korea, came back, had one good season, and then has been injured. So in no way is Miles Michaelis a guy who I came into the season thinking, oh, this guy's a lock to be a very good pitcher in the Cardinals rotation. But he's, uh, ooh, there's my, uh, there's my, uh, my text message uh, <laughs> sound right there uh, from uh, Close Encounters. Uh but Miles Michaelis has been very good. Um, he's been exactly what you want Miles Michaelis to be. And uh, I'm surprised that he's been able to regain, uh, you know, more or less exactly the form that we saw from him in 2018. So Miles Michaelis is my biggest surprise. Yeah. And he is doing it, you know, as you said, he's doing it uh, with his peripheral numbers. He's actually increased his, his strikeout rate by about three percentage points from 2018, which yeah. is very good to see. His walk rate's about the same. And and you can look at uh, his batting average on balls in play. And in 2018, it was 279. Now it's down in the, in the 220, high 220s. And so, you, you know, you might look at that and be like, well, that is unlikely to continue, and, and you would be right. But at least early on, Michaelis is deploying his repertoire in a way that allows him to induce weak contact. And, you know, StatCast has a lovely stat. It's uh, expected weighted on base average on contact. So it excludes walks and hit by pitch. It's it's only looking at uh, on on what the expected weighted on base average would be on balls and play, basically on contact. And uh, in 2018, that was a 331 for Michaelis. And this year it is 301 uh, entering his start against San Francisco on Thursday night. Uh, we don't have the updated data yet, um, but it's still going to be in the, in the very low three uh, hundreds, which is exceptional. And so yeah. what does this tell us? The things that Michaelis can control, uh, which are strikeouts, walks, and then quality of contact. And mustaches, doing, but go on. Yeah, and mustaches uh, are exceptional. He's doing a phenomenal job with it. And he's, he's not a sexy guy doing it. Uh, his stuff is nothing that uh, you find people fawning over online. Uh, but so far, 
it's had really good results. He has pitched very, very well. Uh, and like you, Ben, uh, I'm surprised because his health was such a question and you just didn't know, even if he was healthy, if he would be able to put it all together again because of the style that he pitches. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for a second award, since you went first on the first award, I'm going to go ahead and, and take this second award here. And and that is for the most likely to rebound. Obviously, there's a number of guys who have had Aprils that aren't off to a great start. And so for this, I'm going to take Tyler O'Neill. Um, Tyler O'Neill is uh, one of several Cardinals, one of several Cardinals outfielders even, who's... Uh, you know, not producing at the level that we would have hoped. Um, as I'm looking at it right now, he's at an 80 weighted runs created plus, so 20% below league average. Um, obviously, not what we expected from Tyler O'Neill, who was who played well enough last year that you know, had were he to replicate that, would be you know a guy who's kind of in the MVP conversation. You know, he was putting up those kind of numbers. Um, Looking under the hood, though, I really don't have a lot of concerns about Tyler O'Neill. Um, first of all, he, he has the best walk rate and the best strikeout rate of his career going so far. Um, and, you know, it's still a smidge early, but um, but those are really strong. And anytime a guy is struggling like this, I, those are the first two things that I look at. Because if those are really going south, you could be in a lot of trouble and that, that could be tough to recover from, but you know, he's, he's walking at a, at a higher than ever rate. He's striking out less than he ever has before. I mean, his strikeout rate has really, really come down dramatically from again, his, his first go around in the, in, in the majors, he was striking out over 40% of the time. Um, I believe he's at uh, uh, 24.5% is where he's at right now as I look at it. So very, very good there. Now, um, his contact numbers are not so strong so far this season. His his hard hit percentage, his exit velocity. Last year, these were elite, and we, we talked about it. Um, Tyler O'Neill was a guy, if you looked on his Baseball Savant page, and Baseball Savant has the, the sliders for all of these things from, you know, uh, 1 to 99 to let you know what percentile they're in. And, and you know, we said Tyler O'Neill was like a video game creation because it was like every slider was like slid to 99, <laughs> basically, for Tyler O'Neill. Um, you know, his exit velocity and his hard content, hard contact are much more middling this season. So, um you know, maybe that's a bit of a concern, but but Ben, I'm I'm not too concerned about that. Do you, do you have concerns about that, or do you also feel like Tyler O'Neill is likely to rebound? I feel like he's likely to rebound. Rebound. Um, it seems like he's getting pull a little pull happy this year, um, but he has such easy power, and uh, I I think he he will be. Also, he's he has gotten hosed on a lot of calls uh, on the edge of the plate this year. And so I feel like hopefully the umpires will be better at umpiring while he's batting the rest of the year. Um, but also if he gets more to a to a center field to the gaps, then pulling as more of a natural reaction approach that he had last year, uh, which I think he can do. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think he's a strong bounce back candidate. Um, because, and, and we talked about this last year, like we didn't know what to even think about him for the first, you know, like two thirds of the season because the profile was just something that you don't see. Yeah. And so there are weird, 
there's going to be weird stretches like this with him. Uh, I think just because of his profile and, you know, it, it all clicked last year with uh, Albert. Now Schultz was the manager, but hopefully uh, he's able to get it clicking again this year. And and I think he's a good, a good bet to do that. Yeah. So Ben, who, who do you have as the most likely to rebound? Uh, I am going with uh, Dylan Carlson. Um, And here's why Uh, last year, uh, Carlson did a very good job producing uh, when he swung and was aggressive at the first pitch. And part of this is he has had a, an advanced plate approach throughout his professional career. And, and you see him work the count, you see him, uh, work the zone. He has a good concept of the strike zone and uh, what he can hit and what he can't. And last year, uh, when he swung at the first pitch uh, in those plate appearances, he batted for a 276 average. He had a 308 on base percentage, which isn't surprising if you're swinging at the first strike and it's it's not a hit, you're going to be down on the count, which means. Uh, you're you're less likely to draw a walk, uh, but he also slugged 515, uh, and so you know that was a that was a productive thing for him. He did a good job of finding the pitch that he wanted uh, when he was swinging, and he actually performed better when he swung at the first pitch than when he took the first pitch. Believe it or not, well this year uh, he is hitting for a 133 average when he swings at the first pitch. Oh, and uh, a 133 slugging that works out. Uh, his overall OPS is 258, and so that's an OPS plus of two. And for the split of swinging at the first strike, it's a split OPS plus of negative 21, <laughs> which is a uh, 146 point drop from last year. And and what is what is causing this, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's just not making good contact, which is, which is shown in the data. And so if, if I had to bet, uh, given Dylan Carlson's advanced approach to the plate, uh, when he's taking at bats and, uh, his production last year, um, I, I think those numbers are going to improve as the season goes on. And I think that's going to help lift his numbers overall. And uh, I should also add, he's swinging at at 10 percentage points more of first pitches. Last year, it was 23.3%. This year, it's one-third. And so he has gone up. He has been more aggressive on first pitches, and he has fared poorly on them. And I think if he's able to regain his more... uh, traditional plate approach for him or uh yeah plate approach for him on first pitches uh he will uh be able to bounce back this year because i think the way that he works overall is you're up there looking for your pitch to drive and if he doesn't get it he takes and he works the count and so i think if he's if he's doing a better job hunting that first first pitch moving forward and he's able to turn that into success 
I think uh, overall his numbers are going to improve and that's going to flow from that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a good um, choice as well. And I'll tell you, I would also um, pick Dylan Carlson as a guy who I think will bounce back even just because of his age. And I think we forget how young Dylan Carlson is. Dylan Carlson is in his age 23 season right now. Um, Tyler O'Neill, his first cup of coffee with the Cardinals was in his age 23 season. So you remember even for those first couple seasons that Tyler O'Neill was kind of up and down, how, you know, he was still kind of a work in progress. Uh, you know, it, it's okay for Dylan Carlson to be a little bit of a work in progress at this point. I know it, when, when we've seen a guy in the majors for a few years, we get a little more worried about it, but uh, developmentally, I think it's it's not something to worry about. And, and I would always bet on a guy who's who's young. Um, so, Ben, I'll let you lead off on our last award then. We, we just talked about the most likely to rebound. And um, for our final award, uh, we have titled this award in a very classy way, who is the most likely to keep sucking? So, Ben, who, who sucks now and you think is going to keep on sucking? Uh, I am giving the the uh, Ty Wigginton Memorial keep on sucking award to (laughs) Corey Dickerson. And, and here is why Uh, in 2013 uh, Ty Wigginton, when he was cut by the Cardinals, he had a 158 batting average, a 238 on base percentage and a 035 isolated power. All that worked out to a 197 weighted on base average. Uh, Corey Dickerson is right now, uh, he has 49 plate appearances to Ty Wigington 63, and he has a 178 batting average, which is 20 points higher. He has a 224 on base percentage, which is 14 points lower. And he has an isolated power of uh, 0.22, which is 13 points lower. All that equals a weighted on base average, 197, the same as Ty Wigginton, about two-thirds of the plate appearances to Ty Wigginton. And uh, I think that Corey Dickerson so far has given us very little reason uh, to believe, despite what it looked like on paper coming into the season so far this year, he's not hitting the ball hard. He's not working counts. He's not doing well against right-handed pitchers. Really, he looks like he is the left-handed bench bat equivalent to Ty Wigginton's right-handed bench bat equivalent nine years ago. And uh, hashtag Wig, Corey Dickerson is the player most likely to keep sucking. Well, I can't, I can't argue with you there. Um, Ty Wigginton, uh, or excuse me, Corey Dickerson does play in the Miguel Cairo era, however, so that maybe helps him a little bit, but I, I don't it, see it, a lot of reason to be optimistic. Well, lest, lest we get carried away, you are right. Ty Wigginton's weighted runs created plus was 18. Uh, Corey Dickerson's is uh, almost twice as high, but it's still only 30 uh, so far this year. So yes, you are correct. Uh, The era helps him, uh, but it doesn't help him enough. No, no, not, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Well, uh, my award here for the most likely to keep sucking, it greatly pains me. And I'm going to have to make sure every now and then my youngest son will uh, 
like listen to a little bit of one of these episodes and this is his favorite player. So I'm going to have to make sure he does not hear this, but I'm afraid <laughs> I have to give the most likely to keep sucking award to Yadi or Molina. And I love Yadi. He is one of my all time favorite Cardinals. He should be, and I think will be a first ballot hall of famer. He is a Cardinals legend. Um, sometimes the end of the career for Cardinals legends is not, not the, the year that we want to remember. And I think that's what we're going to see with Yachty and, and some of these guys, and we've already, you and I have talked about Tyler O'Neill, about Dylan Carlson, you know, some, some of these guys, uh, who were expected to be, uh, you know, everyday players who've maybe started out poorly. We see for some reason they're going to improve. I really do not think we're going to see improvement from Yadier Molina. So Yadier Molina currently has a, an OPS plus of, uh, of 28, which is extremely bad. Of course, you know, it's fairly early in the season. Yes, of course, that's going to rise. But how much is that going to rise? If, if uh, Dan Zimborski, who we had on during the offseason, his, his preseason zips projection for Yadi was an OPS plus of 74, which that was one that jumped out to me even early in the season. And I know we've talked about uh, Tony Larusa fairly famously saying that uh, Yadi could have uh, Yadi could hit zero and he'd still put him in the lineup. <laughs> um you know, 74 OPS plus, we're getting we're getting close to zero if you're going to do that for a season. And so, you know, that was the the Zips projection for Yachty coming into the season. Um, I, I think, you know, and it's this is all anecdotal, of course, but Yachty is out of shape. We can all see that, right? Um, you know, he's admitted he's out of shape. There's a lot of talk about how he's going to work himself into shape. I don't I don't see how he's going to do that during the season. So, you know, if this is a guy who are, you know, one of our best projection systems saw as, you know, being uh, 26% below league average at the plate. And then on top of that, he came to spring training late out of shape. He's 39 years old and a catcher. Uh, I love Yachty. I am excited to see he and Wainwright break the uh, record for most games together by a battery. Um, I am still somewhat hopeful that the, the limited playing time can maybe help to, to whatever extent. I think it's better than it could be if he was out there trying to play every day. But I just don't really think we're going to see uh, much of a rebound from from Yachty. So that's why, unfortunately, I have to I have to give him my award for the most likely to keep sucking. Uh, it, it is it is not good for Yachty. Uh, you know, his. His offensive value uh, for a few seasons has been largely batting average driven. Uh, and this year, he, the quality of contact just has fallen off a cliff. Um, and so I, it is not looking good. And I am, uh, as folks who follow me on Twitter know, very much Team Yachty um, and... Uh, but you you look at his at bats. You then look at the the data on his at bats, and it just confirms what you're seeing. And normally he comes into spring training and is in great shape and is ready to go. And uh, you know I don't I don't begrudge someone having a life and, and having to deal with that life. Right. Like, Oh, and, and, you know, we were told, we were told he had some personal issues. I don't think we ever heard exactly what those were and I don't need to know what those are and he doesn't no. need to explain it or make excuses. Yeah. This is no, no shot at Yachty or his character or anything. I mean, the, the 
way that he has kept himself in shape for so many years, you know, is amazing. But, you know, you hear people talk about watching Willie Mays in his last season playing for the Mets. And he was just, you know, he was broken down and he just couldn't really do it anymore. And, and unfortunately, you know, ends of careers, this is how we kind of see things. I mean, we've got Albert Pujols back on the team this year, which, which again, is amazing. I'm enjoying it. But, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're watching the tail end of a career and this is just what they look like sometimes. Yeah, I, we're we're Mo, entering, most times. This is what they look like most times, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 with Pujols, we're entering the part of the season where it's going to be like, ah, uh, yeah, we've got him for yeah. the rest of the year. <laughs> right. uh, and then in September, we'll have the nostalgia kick back in. Uh, but, it's like when, but it's when, like when you run into somebody you know at the grocery store, and you're like really excited to see them, and you have a great conversation. But then you like keep bumping into them throughout the store the rest of the time yeah. you're there. And by the end, you're kind of like, oh god, let's just check out and go. And yeah, that's that's what it's going to be like. Uh, but do you know what my uh, my favorite Yadier Molina stat so far this young season is? According to Statcast, he's in the 92nd percentile for framing. So that bodes really well for now. How much of that is Wainwright? How much of that is Yachty? How much is, is their powers combined? Who right. cares? Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it is fun to watch uh, the old goat uh, get his calls. And you know what? Hopefully he's able to play himself into shape. I like Kisner, but if it's October and they're playing meaningful baseball, yeah. You know, I don't want this doe-eyed kid out there. Uh, I want Yachty because he's been there before, and you never know when he's going to go full World Baseball Classic, uh, yeah. or even the 2020 postseason, where it felt like he was just leading the team against the Padres, and they came up short in the end. But you know, Yadier yeah. Molina felt like he set the tone for the Cardinals even being competitive in that season. And yeah, so, and I think we can be hopeful. And the fact that he's not playing all the time, I mean, he's if he needs to get himself in shape, he can be focused on getting himself in shape. And he's not having to do that while he's also having to, you know, deal with all of these, you know, kind of nagging injuries that just keep popping up from, from being injured behind the plate there. So, um, well, Ben, we're, we've hit the one hour mark here and we still need to get to some listener questions. So I think we should, uh, we should dive in on those. Are you, you game? I am ready. All right. Let me get over here. And again, we had so many li- great listener questions. So we're, we're going to, we're going to hit on all of these. We'll, we'll, we'll try to be relatively quick with each one. Um, so the very first question, um, came from our, uh, our good, uh, good friend of the pod C70, uh, who asks, do you at all buy into an uptick in offense quote, when the weather gets warmer. Um, and, you know, Ben, we kind of talked a little bit already about the uh, the Miguel Cairo uh, um, offensive profile of the entire league this year. W- w- do you buy into the idea that it's going to uptick when it gets warmer? Uh, yes, because of the implementation of the humidors. Eno Saras on The Athletic had a good article on this. And uh, basically, phys- physicists expect the humidors to help offense uh, later on this year. And so uh, I've greatly simplified that. So I, I think you will see improved offense uh, as the weather gets warmer and the humidity goes up. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've read those as well. And, um, you know, also calling on my background as a climate scientist. No, I don't have any of that. Um, but I, I, I trust that to be the, 
to be true. And, and we know that just historically it happens as well. So regardless of what is going on with the ball itself or the ball, because it's in the humidor, um, I think we'll see an uptick. I think maybe the more interesting question will be how much of an uptick will we see? You know, um, you know, even if it's kind of proportional to what it's been in the past, you know, we're starting at such a low kind of level uh, offensively that, um, you know, we, we it could still be a, a pretty, uh, pretty slim on the offensive side um, going forward there. So. Right. And, and the other thing is Manfred is in charge of the manufacturing of the balls. And I saw uh, one of the physicists that uh, Eno Saris has worked with uh, sent out a picture of a ball that was up for auction from a Kansas city game and basically saying it's so misshapen. How do you even let this out to be played with? And so like basically Rob Manfred is so incompetent that he's completely screwed up the baseball. So heaven only knows what will happen. Uh, but overall the humidors themselves, I feel like will help increase offensive production in spite of Manfred's incompetence. Yeah, well, it'll be and it'll be definitely interesting to watch. So, uh, next question: um, uh, JP Hill Cards, uh, uh, who writes at Viva Albertos, um, and someone you should read and follow uh, he, as well. He asks, uh, "Who gets the most starts at shortstop for the Cardinals this season? DeYoung, Sosa, Edmund, or other?" Uh, I'm going to go with DeYoung. Yeah, uh, he already has the starts banked. Uh, the team seems more committed to him than Sosa, uh, which I agree with, by the way. I I feel like sometimes folks are like, hey, you were up, you were positive on Sosa before last season even started. I did not expect Edmundo Sosa to do what he did last year, and I certainly don't think he'll repeat it. Well, uh, he and, has... And- and you and and to come to your defense here as well, you were kind of arguing with people who said he should not be on the team. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, like, he no. should be on the team. You were never saying he should be the starting shortstop. Right. He's he is a perfectly good bench infielder, um, and and the reason he's perfectly good is he's a very good defender. You can put him uh, almost anywhere on the infield, and he has good bat to ball skills, um, and. And so I would be surprised if he supplants DeYoung for more than a couple weeks. And even if he does, I would be very surprised if he hits at a level that merits playing him over DeYoung. And I also don't think they are going to move Edmund, uh, who they haven't ever really thought about putting at shortstop yet. Um and I don't think Edmund's bad is good enough to try and find him a place as a starter. So, uh, you know, Edmund is fading from being a starter and I think that'll continue. I think Sosa, the team does not view as a starter and rightfully so. And I think the team hopes that DeYoung finds what he had and reestablishes himself as a starter, but admittedly he's off to a terrible start, but he's already got a month worth of plate appearances so far this season. And I think that gives him a leg up and the team uh, rightfully gives players a full opportunity uh, to fail before moving on from them. And I think that's going to be DeYoung. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, 
you know, I know that that uh, uh, Kyle has long advocated for uh, Tommy Edmond to get a, some play at shortstop. I've heard other people who watched him play shortstop, uh, which he did extensively in the minors, suggest you know he sh- you know he should be fine there. Um, it's a little surprising to me in some ways that the team has not tried that. And again, I, I hate to just sort of uh, you know defer to authority here, but the fact that they have not tried it at all just makes me believe that. There's something that they know that we don't know, or at least that they think they know that we don't know that, you know, he's not playable there. So I would be really interesting to see them try that. And honestly, I think, you know, Edmund, um, while I think you've uh, pointed out very well his limitations offensively, if he was giving you shortstop defensive value, I think could very well be a, a starting player. Um, as opposed to kind of a utility player, which we both view him as. So like you, I think Paul DeYoung probably stays there. And, and just to highlight, um, <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm, I'm like the universal Paul DeYoung defender, okay? Paul DeYoung has a, currently has a 40-weighted runs created plus, so 60% below league average, uh, which, is, which is very bad, okay? But Paul DeYoung has plus defense. Paul DeYoung has plus base running. Paul DeYoung's current wins above replacement, which factors all those things in, is is zero. Now, that's, of course, not good. That's replacement level. But here's a list of some players on the Cardinals who are currently below him in terms of wins above replacement. Albert Pujols, Edmondo Sosa, Lars Newbar, Newbar, Brendan Donovan, Yadier Molina, Dylan Carlson, and Corey Dickerson. Okay, so with all of those guys who have off to a worse month of April than DeYoung, I just don't understand why people are so out to get Paul DeYoung. And I think part of it is a perception thing. Um, And, you know, I think that if we thought of Paul DeYoung more as a a light hitting uh, glove uh, glove man, I think people would understand it. You know, think of Paul DeYoung as Andrelton Simmons, right? Uh, They look very different. And I think that's the problem is people, those those, uh, defensive wizard shortstops, you know, people want to be, uh, you know, uh, like a hundred pounds and, you know, uh, and, and make these kind of, uh, highlight athletic plays. Paul DeYoung doesn't do that, but he provides that kind of value. He is that kind of player. So, um, you know, I think his offense has struggled for long enough. Now it would be great if they could find a way to upgrade, but I don't think he's nearly as bad as a lot of people believe that he is. So, um, so uh, moving on, Ben, J.D. Alfonso asks, do you ever worry that O'Neill and Carlson are the second coming of Grichuk and Piscotty? Why or why not? I personally believe um, O'Neill and D.C. Um, are better defenders than Grichuk and Piscotty. However, even though it's early, the way those two look at the plate is frustrating. Uh, I, so you have to look at a, at a few things here. Um, one is prospect pedigree uh and then the other is obviously performance uh professionally and you know Gritchick always had huge strikeout numbers but never put together you know a major league season of the type that o'neill did last year so o'neill has more returns on his potential than Gritchick does piscotti uh you know, had some good production for the Cardinals before they had to trade him. Um, But that, that was largely a batting average on balls and play driven. And that was more Piscotty's profile. He was, he was a good hitter. And the question was, 
you know, would he walk enough? And then, you know, you, you, uh, you contrast that with, uh, Carlson who really showed a professional plate approach last year, um, and some solid power as well. And, and I just, I can see where the question is coming from, but the nuances of their hitting profiles, um, and also the fact that O'Neill is is a corner outfielder and only a left fielder, and an elite one at that. I I I don't think that they are, uh, you know, Piscotty and Grichik, but I think that's their floor. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I, I thought this was a great question because I thought that that's a really good illustration in our minds of kind of like, you know, yeah, their floor or like if things don't go well, we may just have another Grichik and Piscotti on our hands for sure. Um, but, but you know, you made you made great points there about, uh, you know, about those those important differences. Um, you know, again, just to highlight with, with Carlson, I know I said this before, Stephen Piscotti, his rookie season, uh, age 24, Dylan Carlson is still 23. So, um, you know, he's, he's still younger. He's, he's still developing. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful we'll, um, we'll see them get beyond that. But, you know, I was hopeful on Grichuk and Piscotti at certain early points in their career as well. You know, Grichuk is a guy who I thought, you know, at one point when he was playing some center field, I thought, gosh, if this guy can play, you know, a league average center field that, you know, with that power, maybe that's a player. And, you know, Piscotti always had the contact and he was a big body. So, that, you know, I know I kind of hoped, you know, maybe he can add power to that profile and then that can be a pretty good player. And, uh, you know, they just never really got there. So, um, yeah, I, great question, I think. And a nice kind of visual to think about with those guys. So, and um, and, and I would also add that, their their defense, you know, Piscotti is not a very good defender, and he never was. Like, and so Carlson, you know, is is has a leg up there, and so does O'Neill, and and that's really the extent of it. I feel like they they have built up a floor that is kind of like Piscotti and Grichik's ceiling, yeah. if that makes sense. Like. There's yeah, a Venn but, diagram but there, but we didn't know that that was Piscotty and Grichik ceiling at the, the you know the earliest points of their career. Right. I I guess we didn't for Piscotty. We hoped for more for, from Piscotty. I never hoped for more from Randall Grichik. I if if Mike Matheny is starting you over Oscar Tavares in the postseason, I don't believe in you because Matheny's an idiot and a terrible judge of talent. So. That really drove me away from Grichik, and that's the frame that I'm I'm probably coming to this with, uh, despite the eggs and pinos, Viva Alberto's commenter profile um, <laughs> uh, from from I am Randall, um, which was other level. And I really like Grichik. I really like Piscotti, and and we want them to to be the best. But there's the 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 upper reaches of Grichik are the lower reaches of Tyler O'Neill. And, um, and I feel like Carlson with his plate approach and defense uh, has enough to set him apart as well. Um, yeah. But certainly like the worst case scenario, yes. But I think the worst case scenario 
uh, is less likely for either O'Neill or Carlson than it was for Piscotty or Gritchick. I agree. I agree. So, uh, at FR Robinson, 1957 asks after a month, do you think Hicks can be a starter? Yes, I do. And I think the team may go to like a modified six starter rotation to make it happen, uh, to help with Flaherty's workload, Michaelis's workload, and even, uh, frankly, uh, Wainwright's a little bit because he's up there in age. I, I think you could see basically a six-man rotation with Hicks as as the sixth man. Yeah. I also think Hicks can be a starter, um, and, and I really hope Hicks can be a starter. And when you see Jordan Hicks' stuff, I don't know as a Cardinal fan how you could not really hope that he can be a starter because, you know, his – I mean, his stuff is absolutely – electric. Um, you know, the two questions with him that, um, you know, he hasn't answered these yet, but you know, he's doing, he's doing fine so far. Um, you know, one of them is the, you know, his walk rate is still higher than you want to see it. And I think he's still kind of working on that. I worry a little bit about that with him long-term just because guys like him that have so much movement, I mean, you just, I mean, it is like throwing a wiffle ball. Right. And like, uh, you know, if you can really like curve a wiffle ball, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a challenge <laughs> to get that in the zone. I think that's kind of what you see with guys like Hicks that have so much movement. I always felt like that was something that Carlos Martinez struggled with a little bit as well. Often in his first inning or two, it seemed like he was just trying to get a feel for like, geez, how much is stuff moving today? Because it, it moved a lot. And, and then the other thing, of course, with Hicks is, I guess, to some extent, the, the you know, the stamina and the durability, he got moved into the role kind of late. So he's not starting the season off going as long as people are used to seeing starters. But I think some people are just maybe locked into this mindset that that a starting pitcher is a guy that regularly gives you seven or eight innings. And that ain't what it is anymore. So those guys still exist. There are guys like that. And that's great, of course, when you have those guys. But there's absolutely a profile for a starting pitcher who goes four or five innings, like a, a two times through the order starting pitcher. You're seeing that a lot more. And, and maybe that's the most that Jordan Hicks will ever be able to build himself up to. But if Jordan Hicks, with his great stuff, can give you two times through the order, get you maybe into the fifth, and then you go to your bullpen, that's still a profile that puts you in a great place to win a game. I would much rather have that than have, you know, Jake Woodford up there, uh, you know, slinging garbage. So uh, I, I believe in Hicks. I, I agree with you 100%. I think that's something that we need to think about is, a tra- as you have framed, a transition year for Hicks is what a lot of teams are already doing. Yes. And so if you can build that bridge to next year, you're getting quality innings that help you win this year in a way that a whole lot of other teams are getting the same thing. And, and then you're and also frankly, building for the future. And frankly, this is the kind of more creative thinking that we were told was one of the reasons that the team moved on from Mike Schilt. Um, you know, that these kind of, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, playing platoon matchups more, whether it's just <clears throat> being open to some more creative ways for how you build and utilize your, your pitching rotation. 
that's stuff we were told to expect to see them doing more of with, with Ali Marmol. And this is a hundred percent an example of that. Like you said, if you watch a lot of other teams, this is not uncommon to see a guy in the rotation with this kind of a profile, but it is a little new here in St. Louis. So, yeah, it's, and, and the dissenters that you see are really bringing like a hardcore hashtag bullshit mindset to it. Like it is, rooted in like 1980s whitey ball and well we I, need I, to don't look- think it's, I don't think necessarily think it's that far back but i think it's you know five six years ago that would have probably you know even still been the case it's you know yeah yeah that's true yeah that's true. I, I mean just in terms of that idea that i think even even that recently you know a guy who couldn't who, who just was n- almost never going to get you past the fifth inning, it would be like, well, this guy is not a viable starting pitcher. And that's not, that, that's not the way the industry sees pitchers anymore. And, and you look at how many more innings are thrown by bullpens just league-wise. That's just not the way it works. So um, let's – oh, uh, um, uh, MJ Dive, Michael Diver asks, should the Cardinals set a goal of having an all-Nolan infield? By 2024. And I like this question, Ben, because it reminded me of a few years ago when they really cornered the market on mats. You remember we had, <laughs> yes. we had, we had, you know, uh, Matt Adams and Matt Carpenter and Matt Holiday. And I know over at VEB and, and on Twitter, we had folks who were, you know, tracking uh, mats batted in and mats matted in. Um, you know, the Cardinals always finding these market inefficiencies. Mats were a market inefficiency in the kind of, you know, mid 2010s. I think they're, I think they've identified Nolans as another uh, inefficiency. So what do you think? Should they keep pushing and add as many Nolans as they can? Yes. Nolans are the new money ball. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm excited to see what Nolans might be available on the free agent market this, this off season. 2023 could be the, the year of the Nolans. Um, so at Pleasank asks, and this may be the toughest question of all, uh, who's the cutest Ben? So Ben, I'm going to make you answer that first, and then I'm going to tailor my answer based on how you choose to play that. Uh, well, I, I, I think it's probably uh, one of the other Bens uh, who comments on the Cardinals online. Um, That's a good point. I mean, was this limited to you and I, or you know, there's, there's uh, a good 15, 20 Bens that write about the Cardinals? Yes. Uh, so I'm going to say probably one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a I think that's a solid answer. So and then that that doesn't put you and I at uh, at loggerheads. So uh, we could have brought our wives on to answer that, but then like what if <laughs> like what if they both said you? Then how would I feel about it? So, <laughs> or if they each said the other? Yeah, uh, that right? would be a real problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's not do that. I don't see I, I don't see any way that turns out well. So. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I think, um, you know, one of those STL today, Ben's maybe, um, you know, Ben Clemens, maybe a lot of Ben's out there. So, uh, but I, I guess the, the most important thing to remember is that all Ben's are really pretty handsome. So yes, it, it is a little tough to, to separate us at a certain point. Uh, a Buckeye cards fan asks, uh, odds that Paul DeYoung gets traded this year. I, I think they're pretty low cause I don't see who would take him. Uh, but you know, I guess he could be included. I think the frame of this is something like the Alan Craig trade that included, uh, Joe Kelly for, uh, a a salty bulldog, um, John Lackey. Um, but I just right now, DeYoung, I think 
is most valuable to the Cardinals because they're paying him. And I would be surprised if another team took him on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't see it as being particularly likely either, but I have to admit, I haven't thought through a whole lot. I mean, I do think there's a possibility if he, you know, continues to not produce well offensively that they, at some point this season, there's some kind of a move that's made. Um, I, I think that's possible. And then, you know, what do they do with him? But, but yeah, I mean, they, they could always just hang on to him. Um, you know, they signed him. You remember he signed to a pretty early extension. Um, yes. And so he's not paid a lot of money, um, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So, um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't see it, it real likely, but I think the Alan Craig that you mentioned is a, a good framework for kind of how it could happen. I mean, frankly, it'd be a dump trade if it, you know, if, yeah. if we're in this kind of a situation, they traded him. It, yeah, it would be yeah probably him and a, a minor leaguer and you threw the minor leaguer in just so you got like something back in return. So, um, uh, at S P A R I K H 11, um, asks, is the strategy of bringing up minor league arms who still have starter potential as relievers, an overall beneficial or harmful one for the club when viewed over the course of a player's entire career? How often do these relievers successfully get back to starting? Uh, it, it really depends. Uh, I think you've seen quite a few instances where it's worked successfully. You know, I the the Rays had David Price up as a reliever uh, when they made their World Series run. And then he became a very successful starter. Adam Wainwright had a similar trajectory. Carlos Martinez did. And he became, you know, for three years there, one of the probably one of the 10 or 15 best pitchers, starting pitchers in baseball. And so uh, it can work. You know, but you're also you're asking someone who saw Trevor Rosenthal in the Midwest League and thought he looked better than Carlos Martinez and had a future as a starter. Mm -hmm. And they plucked him out of the minors, stuck him in the bullpen, and that was that. And they did something similar to Helsley, uh, who I also thought had potential as a starter. And so they did the same thing to Hicks. And it's one of those things where once you've had success as a professional and you're making that money, how do you transition back? Um, and uh, so I, I think it can work. And it used to be a more traditional way of doing things uh, to an extent. Uh, many years ago, like before free agency, that was kind of how you broke young pitchers in. Yeah. Um, and so it can work. It has worked. I am someone who I think it's usually better to call them up as a starter and have them be a starter. And I think that's become more true for the dynamic that we've talked about earlier in this episode, where starters aren't expected to go seven, like five is enough. And so if you're able to give them five with two excellent pitches and a serviceable third pitch, then let them do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I stand on it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, and I think, uh, David Price is a good example you brought up and Wainwright, of course, we're all familiar with, but it's worth noting. I mean, those are, those are kind of dated examples at this point, you know, I mean, yep, those were kind of, you know, 10 plus years ago and, and you're, I think you're absolutely right. It used to be a lot more common. I, 
I have a hard time thinking of a lot of guys more recently, whether on the Cardinals or elsewhere, that have done that way. Obviously, they're trying to do it with Hicks right now. So Hicks will be a really interesting example, you know, to see if they can reverse engineer it. But um, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's harder now for a couple reasons. Number one, I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago and really before that, I just don't really think bullpen being a bullpen pitcher was was such a distinct profile. And I think a lot of those guys, when they came, if they came up as relievers, they, they pitched about the same as a reliever as they did as a starting pitcher. And now the profile for bullpen arms is, you know, most of them are two pitch pitchers, really. Right. And, and a lot of them, it's really just one absolutely elite pitch and then one kind of change of pace that they, they have in there as well. And those are the guys you see thriving in the bullpen. And so guys who have the potential to be starters, I think the problem is when they come up and they work out of the bullpen, they sort of start to tailor their repertoire that way as well. And um, especially for young pitchers who, you know, might have two pretty good pitches, but we're still kind of working on that third. Um, now they're not working on that third pitch. So right there, you're kind of they're starting to develop in a way as bullpen pitchers as opposed to as starting pitchers. So it's just it's hard to maybe reverse that and you're losing a little bit of that development. But I also think it's just hard for organizations because, you know, if a guy comes up and he is providing value in the bullpen, like it's a challenge to uh, set that aside. Um, I mean, I think we've seen that with with Helsley, you know. Um, I mean, Helsley is maybe a guy who could have gone back, uh, you know, gone back down, continue to develop and be a starter. I, th- I know there's people who believe that, and I think that's possible. But man, when you see what Helsley can do out of the bullpen, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you, do you, you know, do you want to send him off to hopefully develop into a different kind of pitcher? Or do you just want to say, hey, this is really valuable. Let's let's capitalize on this. So, um yeah, interesting. Um, well, it'd be interesting, really interesting to see what happens with Hicks, and I, you know, um, if we just see any more of those examples kind of going forward. So, all right, Ben. Last question we have: VFN asks, maybe you can talk about Jeff Albert. He gets a lot of praise for success in the minors. Does he deserve any blame for the big club struggles? I think that we tend to give too much credit and too much criticism uh, to major league hitting coaches. Um, I also think that it's important to consider the minor league players and their performance because the Cardinals said they brought Albert on for a system-wide purpose as opposed to just the majors. And when he's working with players at the majors, he's dealing with players who are set in their ways, who have made it to the majors doing things a certain way and may not be as familiar or open to some of the technology that he is bringing about. And Matt Carpenter comes to mind. I mean, he, there was a good article in The Athletic in the offseason where Matt Carpenter said he wasn't open to Jeff Albert, but then after the end of his Cardinals contract, when he wasn't getting any interest, he went and did all of the more advanced body movement, uh, slow-mo cam work, and tried to reconfigure his swing and remake himself as a hitter. And it's really weird to me that he would be failing in St. Louis and not be open to that. But then once his contract was over, he went and sought out that very same type of teaching. But nonetheless, it, it shows you what Albert is working with and sometimes against or trying to overcome. 
And so you have to have a whole system approach when you're assessing Albert because uh, he's redoing things top to bottom. And also you have to keep in mind how terrible Bush Stadium is for hitters and how bad uh, Manfred and Major League Baseball have made the baseball uh, the most important part of the game, the most important piece of equipment in the game uh, for hitters. And, you know, right now their league average, some hitters aren't progressing the way that you'd like, but others are hitting really well, like Nolan Arenado. Yeah. Goldschmidt's doing well. He's bought into the Albert approach uh, and he's heating back up. And so it's it's always difficult to assess what a hitting coach is doing and what they aren't. And and some of the recent reporting like what on what the Giants are doing, having multiple voices to try to reach as many players as possible. And I wish the Cardinals would go more in that direction so it's not just one guy. Yeah, well, and I would just jump in right where you kind of left off there. And I think the thing that we can know the least about is whether or not coaches are good at their job, whether it's hitting coaches or pitching coaches. You know, how, how can we on the outside evaluate that? We really can't. I mean, we look at the performance and I mean, to some extent, that's, of course, totally fair. Right. If you have, you know, if, if your team's not hitting you know, the hitting coach's job is for the team to hit well. If the team's not pitching, pitching coach's not doing that. But it's it's just, it, it's really impossible for us to know what's going on in there. And I think it's even more complicated with the Jeff Albert situation in St. Louis, because as the, the questioner rightly points out, you know, he was brought into this like system-wide role, um, you know, to kind of, you know, bring this like uniform approach throughout the system. And, and we do hear really positive things about how that's taken hold in the minor leagues. So uh, on the one hand, you hear things that like he's really, you know, been successful with. Um, but, you know, in the more traditional kind of hitting coach things, how's, is the major league club hitting well? Are guys going into these prolonged slumps they can't seem to get out of? Well, there's definitely things there that seem to not be going real well. I don't know what the solution is to that, you know, and I think we almost can't know, um, you know, some things I wonder about. For one thing, if he's doing such a good job of developing this system-wide approach, shouldn't that almost be a different job than being the guy that's in the dugout every every night? You know, maybe, you know, maybe he becomes your, like, uh, you know, system-wide hitting coordinator or something. You know, that could be something. You brought up the, the Giants example, which is so interesting the last two years, they've had great success from their hitters. They've got like 51 different hitting coaches in their dugout every game. And and you hear the guys there talk about that, how basically they feel like they can find a coach that they connect with and they can find great success there. That makes a lot of sense to me. I could definitely see that working. At the same time, you know, we've like in St. Louis, when when Mark Rudaska was let go, or to some extent, when we heard about the friction between Schilt and, uh, and Albert, you know, we've heard about having differing um, voices being a problem too. I mean, that makes logical sense to me as well. So I just don't know. Um, <laughs> so it's an interesting situation. I think it's hard for us to assess from the outside, but I hope they, um, you know, I hope they try some things and are able to, uh, to work through it. Um, that is the end of our questions. We're so grateful. So many folks wrote in. Um, you can always tweet at us. Um, at Cardinals Off Day or email us at um, Cardinals Off Day at Substack.com if you have a question. We'll keep those um, stacked up for the next show. Ben, we're, boy, I tell you, you can tell we haven't recorded for a while because we we're going long tonight. <laughs> um, but I think we should kind of uh, pull it into the station here. So, what uh, what are you going to be watching for over this next run of games? 
Uh, I am going to be watching, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, Dylan Carlson's success when he swings at the first pitch of an at-bat. Nice, nice. Um, I am going to be watching for any changes in middle infield um, in terms of what the big league club is doing because I think that could be the earliest um, indication we have that uh, Gormania is about to erupt in St. Louis. Um, uh, as we've said, we both believe that Nolan Gorman is going to come up and play second base. So, um, and, and uh, I don't know exactly what triggers they're, they're looking for in the minor leagues. So I'll certainly be keeping an eye on, on, on his stats down there, but I don't know, you know, what I could see down there that would make me think, Oh, they're going to do this. But, you know, if I said, well, for, I mean, first of all, if they ever move Tommy Edmond to, to shortstop, and even give that a try. I think that's a you know good sign that you know Gormania is imminent. But you know just anything else they do to maybe juggle things up um, with, with who's getting playing time at second base or shortstop, I think that could be a sign that a move is coming there. So I will be on the lookout for that. Uh, lastly, Ben, do you have an off day recommendation for folks? Yeah, uh, Eno Saris at the Athletic had a really good article this week. Uh, it is called Not Swinging is an Art Form, but Is It Bad for the Sport? I encourage everyone to check it out. It's a really good read. Nice, nice. Well, uh, we uh, today I read an article in The Hollywood Reporter, um, and we kind of knew this was coming anyway. Uh, there is a Field of Dreams television show in development. I think it's a limited series. Uh, Michael Schur, the creator of Parks and Rec and The Good Place, is going to be the um, creator and executive producer on it. Uh, it's going to be filming here in Iowa, so we've heard about it here as well. And so I am going to recommend the movie Field of Dreams because why not come on here and recommend something that probably literally everybody listening has already seen. But I'm only recommending it because I'm telling you folks, Field of Dreams is a better and more interesting movie than it's often given credit for. Uh, it has a reputation for being very kind of, you know, folksy and aw shucks and, and, and whatnot. And, and certainly there's elements that, that lead to that. But if you haven't watched Field of Dreams for a while, and I, over the last few years, with my, my kind of younger sons have wanted to watch a lot of baseball movies. So I've gone back and watched a lot of these movies. And I tell you what, Field of Dreams is just a weirder movie than you may remember it to be. Um, you know, it's got this, uh, you know, just there's a lot of kind of like dream logic, um, you know, to how the how the film plays out and, the, you know, the magic realism. Nothing, none of it is ever really explained, um, you know, so it's like... Uh, you know, it's like a very wholesome David Lynch movie almost <laughs> in some ways, just in terms of, you know, how that plays out. You know, we were talking beforehand too. you know, the the family in it, um, you know, are kind of like outsiders in their town, basically because they're, um, you know, uh, extremely liberal hippies who are conflicting with the town because the town's trying to ban books and they're, um, you know, speaking out against it. There's just, there's just a lot to Field of Dreams that I think is... Um, different than people maybe remember it or what its reputation is. So why not give it a watch on the off day? Um, ben, anything else before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I think that just about does it. Uh, thanks everyone for listening after a, a rather long hiatus due to the Cardinals' uh, brutal uh, April into May schedule. And uh, we'll be with you again soon. 
Yep, absolutely. And and one last uh, thank you again for Devant for the, the theme music and to uh, our good friend Dan, who's been doing a lot of our social media. So if you're not already, please follow us at Cardinals Off Day on Twitter. And we will see you guys on the next Off Day. Go Cardinals!